Andrew Faust here at the Center for Bioregional Living with Permaculture Perspectives podcast. And today, my theme is why nuclear power does not belong in the Green New Deal. The history of nuclear power in the United States is important for my listeners to understand. And what I'd like to share with you is a little bit of history and a reading or two from a couple hand-picked selections from my research into this topic. This is a topic that I have been researching for more than 30 years, and it is something that goes back to my teenage upbringing and the Reagan-Bush years with the Cold War. In those times, there was no media coverage of the costs, the true costs that are going into this monstrosity, this aberration, this nightmare that should have never been concocted by any caring, thoughtful human being ever. And what it entailed was a vast network of resources, people, power, and energy that have been put into making something that we no longer can condone as caring, compassionate human beings. When we think about what are we handing to future generations, we need to hold ourselves responsible for what it is that we bring into the world. And anybody who in some way waffles as a politician in particular on whether nuclear power is something that we should consider in addressing climate change and in meeting our energy needs is not responsible to the American people or the future generations of the world. The history of nuclear development in the United States on permaculture perspectives today. As we look at the development of the nuclear weapons infrastructure, we are also looking at the development of the nuclear power energy system in the United States. They go hand in hand. Nuclear power was created entirely by the United States military to create fissionable materials for nuclear bombs. The purpose of nuclear power plants is not to produce electricity. The first and primary purpose of them is to create plutonium for the manufacturing of thermonuclear bombs at Rocky Flats in Colorado. And this was why they were built. Nobody in the scientific community ever was able to agree upon a safe and sound way to responsibly dispose of the radioactive waste from nuclear power plants. Today, we are saddled with decommissioned and aging nuclear power plants that have a vast quantity of radioactive waste on their sites for which there is no way for us to dispose of. We are sitting as the American people on ticking time bombs. 
How many bombs did the United States military blow up at the Trinity Test Range in Nevada after dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Hiroshima killed 70,000 people in one explosion. Nagasaki was done as a test by the military. There was no need to detonate a second bomb. Politically, it was clear that we had the bomb with one drop. The second drop was done to study what happened when a nuclear detonation occurred above ground zero. Hiroshima was detonated at ground zero. The United States military then went on to blow up 900 atomic bombs inside of the continental United States. We blew up 500 above ground. And it was not until mothers organized and protested to the U.S. military that they were finding reports from their dentists that the children throughout the United States had strontium-90, a radioactive isotope which only comes from the fallout from nuclear detonations. And it was not until mothers organized across the entire country and rallied against above-ground testing that we then were able to compel our own government to force the military to blow up their bombs underground, and they went on and blew up 400 more underground after blanketing the entire country and our children with radioactive fallout from 500 above ground tests. We then went on and blew up thermonuclear bombs, which are 10 times to 100 times more destructive and insidious and evil than the fission bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The hydrogen bomb, the thermonuclear bombs, were developed by a sick and twisted man whose name is Edward Teller. These bombs we decided to blow up in the South Pacific, where we seized islands from native peoples, forced them off of their indigenous lands, and then utterly destroyed and contaminated them with nuclear detonations at Enwetok and at Bikini. And I'm going to read to you a passage from Dark Sun, The Making of the Hydrogen Bomb by Richard Rhodes. Here we're going to look at and hear about the detonation that went on in the South Pacific of the thermonuclear experiment. At Engebi, three miles from ground zero, the group went ashore on an island where the sense of desolation was deepened by the presence of a reinforced concrete building, ruptured and shaken but still standing on the island, flat, that had been swept by the blast and the succeeding surge of water. The body of a bird was seen, but no living animals, and only the stumps of vegetation. Among the specimens collected were fish, which seemed to have been burned, 
On each of these fish, the skin was missing from one side, as if the field notes said at the time the animal had been dropped into a hot pan. Red Leader, an F-84 sampler aircraft piloted by Colonel Moroni, flew into the stem of the mushroom cloud at 42,000 feet almost two hours after the explosion. IV historians report, Immediately upon entering the cloud, Red Reed... Red leader was struck with its intense color. It cast a red glow over the cockpit, and his radiological instruments indicated maximum readings. The hand on the integron, which showed the rate at which radioactivity was being accumulated, went around like the sweep second hand on a watch, and I thought it would barely move. The combination of most instruments indicating maximum readings in the red glow like the inside of a red-hot furnace was staggering, and Colonel Moroni quickly made a 90-degree turn to leave the cloud. Fireball measurements and subsequent radiochemistry put the Mike yield, Mike was the name of the test that they did, put the Mike yield at 10.4 megatons, the first megaton yield thermonuclear explosion on Earth. Its neutron density was 10 million times greater than a supernova. Cohen remarks, making it, quote, more impressive in that respect than a star. The little boy uranium gun that destroyed Hiroshima was a thousand times less powerful. Mike's fireball alone would have engulfed Manhattan. Its blast would have obliterated all New York City's five boroughs. More than 75% of Mike's yield, about 8 megatons, came from the fission of the big U-238 pusher around the secondary. In that sense, it was less a thermonuclear than a big, dirty fission bomb. Fission, fusion, fission. The staging arrangement came to be called if Los Alamos had devised a way to burn unlimited quantities of thermonuclear fuel, it had also devised a way to burn unlimited quantities of cheap, ordinary uranium. Edward Teller had not traveled out to Enewetok to watch his former colleagues explode the thermonuclear device that he and Enrico Fermi had conceived in the early days of the Manhattan Project that he had fought for and helped invent. He claimed he was too busy starting the new weapons laboratory at Livermore, but no one doubted that bitterness and hostility, perhaps also jealousy, kept him away. He had not expected Los Alamos to do the job. When he understood that Mike would probably work, he and his colleagues devised a way to observe the explosion from California. Herbert York at Livermore monitored the radio frequency of the Mike firing signal, signal telemetry on a shortwave radio. Teller in Berkeley and Ernest Lawrence and Luis Alvarez monitored a seismograph. The physicists had calculated the time a seismic wave from a successful shot would need to travel under the Pacific Basin to Northern California and had calibrated seismic magnitude with yield. When York heard the mic firing signal, he called Teller. Teller got busy. I went down into the basement of the University of California Geology building in Berkeley to a seismograph that had a little light point marking on photographic film. 
A tremor of that point would show when the shock wave generated thousands of miles away on Eniwetok Island reached Berkeley. I watched the light point, but it would not stand still. Try to look at a point of light in the dark. It will dance before your eyes because your eyes are moving. I took a pencil and steadied it against the side of the apparatus. Then I could see that the point of light relative to the pencil tip was steady. At exactly the scheduled time, I saw the light point move. It moved so slightly that I was not sure whether I just thought it moved or whether it actually had moved. So I stayed around for another 10 minutes lest I miss the real event. Then I took the whole film and had it developed. There was the signal, just as predicted. The sound waves took 20 minutes to carry the message under the Pacific and arrive in Berkeley. The seismic record indicated a big explosion. So, this is the scope and scale of the megalomaniacs of the military-industrial complex. They are perfectly comfortable as boys with their toys to go halfway across the planet and sacrifice an entire island for an experiment about a particular means of destruction that is so insidious and epic in scale that they are congratulating themselves for having done something that is bigger than a star, as we heard, that they can watch on a seismograph in the basement of a university. These types of mindsets have handed us a sensibility that is entirely unreasonable in the modern age. Let's go forward a little bit in this book and see that, in fact, many people who have been in power and related to these arms race activities and these nuclear legacies agree with that assessment that I just articulated. Was that arms race necessary? By one estimate that properly counts delivery systems as well as weapons, it cost the United States $4 trillion, roughly the U.S. national debt in 1994. Soviet costs were comparable and were decisive in the decline of the Soviet economy that triggered the USSR's collapse. Cold warriors have argued from that fact that spending the Soviet Union into bankruptcy itself justifies the arms race. Their argument overlooks the inconvenient reality that the expense of the arms race contributed to U.S. decline as well. Decline evident in oppressive national debt, in decaying infrastructure, and social and educational neglect, which we see today, and which is part of why this pandemic is tearing this entire country apart, because we are so poorly prepared for a good life for the American people because we pissed all our assets and resources down the drain on a bunch of monstrous ideas invented by cronies who want to do nothing other than kill people in the most insanely exorbitant ways ever invented in the history of the world. The potlatch theory of the arms race also overlooks the unconscionable risk both superpowers took of omnicidal war 
One should always remember, the British scientific advisor Solly Zuckerman wrote in 1988, that 30 years ago, Eisenhower, the president who could challenge the Joint Chiefs on their own ground, saw the advantage of a comprehensive test ban without any provisions for verification. What nuclear strategists quaintly called existential deterrence, deterrence at the level of personal dread, set in almost from the beginning. Stalin was deterred from August 6, 1945 onward, which is why he moved so expeditiously to acquire nuclear arms of his own. Harry Truman was deterred by a troubled conscience as well as by a sense that to use nuclear weapons again, making their use credible, would be to reap the whirlwind someday. He said as much in his last State of the Union address shortly before leaving office in 1953. For now, we have entered the atomic age, and war has undergone a technological change which makes it a very different thing from what it used to be. War today between the Soviet Empire and the free nations might dig the grave not only of our Stalinist opponents, but of our own society, our world, as well as theirs. The war of the future would be one in which man could extinguish millions of lives at one blow, demolish the great cities of the world, wipe out the cultural achievements of the past, and destroy the very structure of a civilization that has been slowly and painfully built up through hundreds of generations. Such a war is not a possible policy for rational men. And this is why I am saying that it is so important that we agree upon the reality that nuclear power plants are in our own backyards equally as dangerous as nuclear bombs due to the fact that they can have a chain reaction and a meltdown that happens that would destroy entire regions of this country irrevocably for generations to come. Nuclear power has no place in the United States or the world, and there is no way to mine uranium and to use uranium that is environmentally or ethically or socially responsible. Many of the American Indian tribes in the southwestern desert are paying the price of how toxic uranium tailings are from uranium mining. In addition, many children and people throughout Iraq are paying the price of the U.S. military's ubiquitous use of radioactive materials in the form of DU, depleted uranium, being put into bullets and being used because of the fact that there is an excess of this really hazardous toxic material that is considered to be in some way reasonable to use. There is nothing reasonable about nuclear power or about radioactive materials. What is reasonable is to cut down on our need for energy in the first place and to shorten the distance of transmission of all forms of active energy systems that we implement as part of our solution set to the future energy needs of America. Thank you for listening. 
and I'll be adding more to this segment in future sections.